Welcome to High Noon, where we discuss controversial subje- subjects with interesting people. Joseph Mathie- Massey is my guest uh, this week. He's the author of this amazing book. Um, put it in there. Uh, Rosary Made of Air, which was published by the Exile Press in 2022. And I believe that is his own press shop now, and he can talk about that. Um, but he is also the author of many other books, chapbooks, broadsides, and folios. His work as a poet has appeared in many journals and magazines, including The Nation, A Public Space, American Poet, The Journal of the Academy uh, of American Poets, Verse, Geohumanities, Talisman, and in anthologies um, about, for example, William Carlos Williams. And his poems have been translated into lots of different languages, French, Dutch, Bengali, which is an interesting story, um, Finnish, Czech, uh, and Portuguese. So um, many, many people have read his poetry and his work. So, you know, you are that that rare beast. You are a working poet. Um, and, and despite a lot of people trying to make that not so, um, you, you have managed to, to make a living as a working poet. Um, how did how did you get into poetry, Joseph? Because um, so many people follow you on Twitter, and and um, I think you, you went on Megan Kelly last week, and, and I, th- I really agree with what she said. You know, your your Twitter feed is such a breath of fresh air um, in Twitter because every so often, out of all the hot takes and the you know the sort of fighting on Twitter, um, you will get this poem that is, and I think one of the the words that comes up often to describe your poetry is the sense of stillness. Um, and it really does stop me and I know a lot of other people when we're scrolling Twitter and kind of in our doom scroll mode and, and we read one of your poems. So how did you first get interested in poetry? How did you know that this is really what you wanted to do or needed to do? Uh, it started with a with a Jim Morrison biography. Um, as I told Megan, when I was 12 years old, I don't know why I bought it. I used all my allowance money to buy this, you know, six to seven dollar paperback from a paperback carousel in a, in a pharmacy somewhere like Rite Aid or something. And I think it was the, uh, the title of the book that attracted me. No one here gets out alive, which as a 12 year old, uh, resonated with me, resonated with me because I had a terrible home life and, um, something about the urgency of it was intriguing, but, um, I quickly found that I had a lot in common with the, the young Jim Morrison because he was a delinquent, basically. Um, but he was intelligent and everybody knew he was. Um, but he just uh, he, he hated school as much as I did. Um, I hated it because there there was no education going on there for me. They didn't know what to do with me. And um, at that time, I was told to not even go into class anymore. This was like the sixth grade, I think. I failed the third grade. Um, They said, stop going to to class, just go straight to the auditorium and just sit there all day long. It was like a permanent in-school suspension. And so I just had all the time to read, um, which I liked doing. And reading that book uh, introduced me to... um, the French poet Arthur Rimbaud, which was really transformative for me uh, because Rimbaud wrote most of his work uh, before he was, uh, well, he stopped writing poetry when he was in his early 20s. And um, he wrote some of his best work when he was still, you know, post-adolescent, really, um, teenager. And um, that, that really... It was 
such a contrast to the language that I was surrounded by at that age because I was a very working class family. Um, lots of drug, uh, alcohol abuse, and language was something used to to um, hurt other people or to express hurt in ways that uh, you know were far from. Uh, poetic or, 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 or novel at all. It was just a lot of vulgarity really. And, um, it hurt to hear it, but to be introduced to poetry, it was so radical and it still is for me because it's a, it's, it's a way of using language that is beyond, uh, hurting anyone or manipulating anyone into anything. Um, and, uh, that's what kept me hooked. And then I started writing it myself almost immediately or attempting to. And, um, I knew something was, something was working when that summer I was staying at my grandmother's house. I usually did. And I was like walking home and I saw smoke billowing out of the backyard and my grandmother was burning my notebook that I've been writing poems in. And, um, she was very upset because she said it was blasphemous and blah, 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 which it wasn't. But, um, it was some kind of strange confirmation that what I was writing was effective. And I think that also helped to continue to keep me hooked. You, you wrote to, um, other poets during that time. I, I, I you, you've, and you've written about how you, you wrote to them and some of them wrote back to you. I mean, uh, did that give you the encouragement that you needed? You really weren't getting it at home. Um, but they, they kind of, I, I read some of the letters that you put back and they, they took you seriously as an adolescent, you know, they gave you notes on your poems. They, um, and I, I just remember even in four like nicer circumstances than, um, what you grew up, I had a wonderful family, but, um, there is that burning need to be taken seriously at that age. You know what I mean? Like that, adults would actually um, engage with you as a close to an adult yourself. Is that, did that like give you the, the thought that you might be able to keep doing this um, as, as you like, as you aged, as you became an adult yourself or. Yeah, I, um, I guess I was 15. And at that time I was spending, um, most of my time in the, in the Dover, Delaware public library. And, um, I wouldn't even go to school. I would just, uh, sit in the library and read, but I found a book, a reference book called, uh, I think it was just called like contemporary poets or something. And it had bibliographies for all of these poets and, uh, biographies. And at the ends of the entries, it would often list their address. Some had agents, some had PO boxes, but Allen Ginsberg was in there whose work I really loved at the time and still do. Um, and, uh, I, I just wrote to him. I sent him poems. I think they were just handwritten. I didn't have a computer or anything. And, uh, he wrote back when he wrote back, that was, that, that really was confirmation for me that I was doing something worthwhile that I wasn't just goofing around, which I think up to that point, I, just self-consciously thought I was kind of maybe just goofing around with poetry. It was something, it was like a hobby. It was a hobby. But at that point I knew it wasn't a hobby. It was a calling. And, um, Ginsburg, 
uh, commented on specifically on the poems I'd sent him, said what he liked about them, said that they were better than the poems he wrote at 15. And he told me to read uh, William Carlos Williams. And that was another, you know, another stage of this, uh, of a you know transformation or self-education really. Um, yeah. And I, I went on to write to, I mean, that became kind of, that was my MFA program. That was my, you know, that, and it was also my way out of Dover. It went my way out of this world where nobody read poetry. Nobody gave a, a crap about what I was doing. Um, yeah. So I, I have Allen Ginsberg to thank for that. Then I went on to, to correspond with other poets who became really consistent mentors to me. Um, it's funny that you used poetry or I guess funny is the wrong word, but, um, you used poetry to, as an escape in many ways from the, the world in which you grew up, but the, and I, I'm no poet critic or, um, poetry critic or anything, but, um, there's so much of new England in, at least to me, when I read your, your poetry, there's, there's this like sort of austere use of, of language, um, that it is almost like, it, for me, it's very evocative of New England, actually. Um, and I don't know if you you feel that way about it, but um, as somebody who comes from the outside, um, from grew up in the West, and um, New York is definitely the furthest north I've lived and um, only visited New England a few times. But uh, it almost reminds me that, the, like, because New England has that light, that kind of, like, austere winter light that persists long past where, like, the rest of the Continental 48 have that kind of winter light. And I feel like you interact with that light a lot in your, in your poetry. And then now in your photography. Yeah, it suits me. New England suits me. The weather suits me. Um, having four distinct, very distinct seasons really suits me because prior to living here, I lived in uh, on the coast of Humboldt County, California for 12 years. And uh, they don't really have, they don't have seasons. It's like half the year it rains. And then the other half it, it, doesn't rain as often and uh it's foggy and it's cold all the time and i love that a lot of people didn't you know it was uh that suited me for a time but you know you do develop a vitamin d deficiency and um <laughs> mold is is a horrible thing there you know like my books would just get destroyed because the humidity was so high i lived right next to the ocean but I think I was, yeah, I was primed to live, to, to not only to live here, but to, to write about this place because writing about place was always a preoccupation for me. Even, even in those poems I sent to Allen Ginsberg at 15, I've always been um, interested in writing about the world that's immediately around me. And, um, but my, real mentor in poetry, uh, Sid Corman grew up in Massachusetts and he wrote a very austere kind of poetry. He's known for writing short poems. Um, and in that sense, he's similar to another new Englander, uh, Emily Dickinson. And so I kind of already had new England in my kind of poetic DNA before I moved here. But then some of my other favorite poets are, are, you know, uh, totally New Englanders, like Robert Creeley, um, who uh, also wrote a very kind of austere, like if you read his poetry, you would know maybe right away that he he's a New Englander. Um, but I don't 
I don't, I, I would never say I'm a New Englander. I still feel like I'm just visiting and I've always felt like I'm just visiting wherever I've lived. I don't, I don't feel like I belong in any one particular place, but what's great about poetry is that it, it does in a way, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a serious way connects me to where I live, to where I am, because I am writing about what's immediately local and what's immediately present. And, um, so it, it's, it's certainly a way to, it's, it, it keeps me from being too aloof. Yeah. You, uh, you take as your subjects often just the, you're right. Like just the observation of either the, the natural world around you or, um, the, the actual human, um, sort of built, uh, environment, right? So you write about the family dollar, you write about the things that are, are immediately around you and you find beauty, um, in, in things that other people, I don't think, uh, sort of, are, they just go by or they don't think about, like you famously on Twitter, you like to look at walls, right? Um, you know, like to look at the shadow on brick or the shadow in puddles. Um, you have a real gift for finding beauty in the sort of ordinary and the, the rooted and the place, um, in which you're actually just find yourself. Um, and maybe, maybe exactly because you're a little bit, um, you don't quite feel like you fit anywhere. You, you have amazing powers of observation wherever you are. Yeah. Well, I'm obligated to mention Family Dollar in all of my books because I'm, I'm the poet laureate of Family Dollar. So they, they require it. Um, no, they don't. But yeah, it, everything is always new. Like I really, since the pandemic, pandemic, I haven't really left like a 10 block radius. Um, I visited my family once in June of 2020, but since then I really have not left a 10 block radius. And, um, so my world is, um, very encapsulated. And yet whenever I walk to the coffee shop, which I do almost every day, everything, everything looks new. And it's a very, it's a real blessing. I feel that I am able to see the world that way. And that I don't take the most quotidian detail for granted. It all interests me. Trash interests me. <laughs> Just, which not to be very, not to be American beauty about it. I actually will intentionally avoid like floating. What is it in American beauty? It's like a floating paper plate or something. I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I ignore that kind of thing, but, uh, cause just cause I'm a contrarian, but walking through a museum, it feels, sometimes it feels like walking through a museum. It's just, a simulacrum of what can be found in the everyday world. Um, so let's, let's turn to, since you have this exile press, right, which is yours, right? Um, yeah. You essentially have started a press company. And the reason that you have done that is because the, the traditional um, press companies and the entire poetry world of MFA type programs and, and presses that publish um, contemporary poets, that world was closed to you. Um, and, and you, you were canceled during the, the me too era. And you, you wrote a, a very long piece at Quillette um, just describing how that felt defending yourself um, from some of the charges admitting to others. Um, and, and that's, I'm sure this is in common with a lot of people, but that's when I first became aware of you because that piece um, was widely circulated when you wrote it. 
Um, and this was at the height of the Me Too era. Uh, and my response to that piece was not only sort of being indignant on your behalf um, that you had never been given an opportunity to sort of defend yourself in this way before they took your livelihood and your ability to publish from you. Um, but also that it, it, it was, it, it seemed to me to be a real injustice that you would have to publish something like that. Um, it, it felt very much like, and maybe this, this analogy is going too far. I don't know, but it felt very much like we had required you to emotionally strip in public, right? Um, that because the, the, um, during the Me Too era, we had dispensed with the notions of due process and fair play uh, that that traditionally accompanied any kind of accusation of misconduct that essentially we forced you into the position of having to publicly, because you had been publicly accused and had no um, recourse, you know, other than to defend yourself publicly. It just, there was something about that that doesn't sit right with me that we we should force somebody to sort of, because that's what you do in that piece, right? You bear your soul, your abusive, you know, sort of past your childhood, um, everything, you know, your struggles with your mental health, like, and you cop to to behaving badly, but then not to some of the, the things that you were accused of. I mean, it seemed to me just that that's one of the things that struck me with the Kavanaugh hearings as well, that he was forced to like, you know, talk about how he was a virgin until a certain age. He was talk he was forced to talk about, you know, um, what boofing meant, right? Like his jokes about, um, and some of that was funny, right? But a lot of what you wrote is not funny. It's, it's sort of the, the sort of things that a person might share with a very close friend or, um, you know, with, with a lover or, a and you, you were forced to share it with the world, yeah. I didn't want to write that essay. And um, it was extremely painful to write it. And I felt I had to be like, there's this word transparency that gets used, you know, and um, I had tried to be transparent when the initial attacks were starting, like posting apologies on Facebook. And the feeling is that, well, if I'm completely transparent, they'll stop, you know, they'll know that I'm not, I haven't done these things, but it just made the attacks worse. Um, so I thought I had to be completely and totally trend, like you said, strip in public and just let it, everything hang out so that they, there's, there'd be nothing more for them to say, um, that couldn't be, um, contextualized or already explained in the essay. And it, it, it achieved that, that, that goal because ever since I wrote the essay, there were no more uh, articles written about me. Um, the main attacker, the person who orchestrated the entire thing, I mean, methodically orchestrated it, like very, very meticulously planned the whole thing. She just, she left the internet. Um, there's nothing more they can say. Um, but they still can, you know, people still continue to pop up and attempt to torment me, especially since the Megyn Kelly appearance, um, just a couple days ago, somebody was started attacking me again and dredging things up that are completely untrue that if they had read my essay, maybe they wouldn't have, uh, 
tweeted the things that they tweeted, but you know, they probably would have anyway, because I think it gets to a point where the truth doesn't matter. I think it's similar to the Brett Kavanaugh thing. People's emotions are so they're, they're so emotionally invested in this uh, scandal. And a lot of the emotional investment seems to be projection. It's very personal. It's root, deeply personally rooted for them. And so it doesn't matter what the truth is because they're really, they're, they're, they're actually talking and responding and reacting to something else, something that happened to them or a friend of theirs or whatever you become, you, the person being attacked becomes an effigy and you're no longer really human to them. And I noticed that with the Brett Kavanaugh thing, some very, like very intelligent friends who were very much opposed to me too. And me too excesses. They, were opposed to Kavanaugh simply because they were, how did one of them put it? Because they believed the, her, I forget her name. Christine Blasey. Christine, Gloria. yeah. They, they just, they believed her or they wanted to believe her. You know, they felt for her. And so the facts didn't really matter beyond that point. They were emotionally drawn in and, um, I, I saw that play out around me, I mean, on, a, on an incredible scale, um, because nobody in the, po I was the only poetry world, you know, working poet who was me too um, There were some others, but they were also, you know, better known as, they're better known as like fiction writers and things like that, or they're like academic people and they were called out in, in the academic, in academic context, but um but these poetry world people, they know who the, they know who the predatory people are. Like they, they know like there are these professors who sleep with students and blah, 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 but they would never ever be called out. Um, because that's where the money is in poetry. Um, that's the real power structure in poetry is academia and poets are so craven. And I think because there's so few rewards they would never speak out against, you know, so-and-so professor who's well known for groping students at the bar after workshop. So I became a very convenient effigy for them. And it was, you know, in hindsight, it's, um, it's not funny, but it is funny in a way that they tried to portray me as this powerful literary figure. When I was no one's professor, was not an editor, was not, running a reading series. I never had any transactional relationships with other poets, male or female. Like I'll help get you published if you do this for never. And, uh, you know, another, I think, well, for, to me, it's rather striking in my case that there were never any receipts. Where are the receipts of this manipulative behavior. I'm, I don't, I don't really go anywhere. I'm kind of a recluse. I always have been. So many of these interactions took place online that I'm being accused of, but where, where are the receipts? You know, there aren't any. And, um, that's because they weren't transactional conversations that I was having. And there was nothing, um, fundamentally wrong with them at all. It was just, um, in the fervor of the moment, any interaction I ever had with anybody was revised in that person's 
you know, I don't, I don't know. I can only speak for other people, but I was, any interaction I ever had with anybody was viewed through this nefarious lens. And um, I think there's a psychological term for it. It's called something like a purity spiral or an impurity spiral, something like that, where just everything is with the person who's in the middle and being attacked. Everything they've ever done is seen as having this, uh, you know, impure, terrible um, intent behind it. You know, I think, I think the term actually goes back to like the, uh, the Puritans, you know, the things that they, those, uh, those mass mobbings that happened. Um, let's back up for a minute. Why don't you explain what happened to you professionally? Cause one of the, the things that really has, um, stood out to me, and I think this is a feature Generally, I don't want to say the left of everybody on the left, but of this particular sort of ideological <clears throat> strife of the left, the woke left, um, is it's almost a, a, a form. And I think this this kind of um, construction, psychological construction, is overused, but it's almost a form of projection because they speak so much about power, you know, power, power dynamics, um, but they really do ignore the power dynamics. And, and that's what struck me in, in, um, you know, your essay and then your follow-up at American mind, it was always very clear. Like, as you said, you, you never actually held, you didn't have a professorship. You, you did briefly work for a university of Pennsylvania, but you, you there are no like connections to, um, your job there in, in terms of the people who were trying to cancel you or accuse you of things. Um, there, there was, in fact, um, it seemed like, there, there was no concrete power uh, that that you really held, but they were accusing you of of using this supposed enormous or wielding your supposed enormous power um, in this inappropriate way. But why don't why don't you go back and just explain um, sort of how you heard about this, what you were doing before, and then um, how how you reacted to it, and how you know what happened to the the career that you had built yourself. So how to condense it. I mean, so I, I lived my twenties in incredible poverty. I don't know how I survived it. Um, I mean, I do know in, in, in some literal ways, how I survived it. I would steal vegetables from people's gardens and things like that, just to, just to eat. And I never imagined that I could make money do, you know, as a poet, but things started to change in my early thirties. When my first book came out, it got, um, you know, it was reviewed quite a bit. The second book even, you know, reviewed in the San Francisco Chronicle. And then I started being written about uh, by um, influential critics and anthologized like that. And th the William Carlos Williams anthology from University of Iowa. That was that felt so I mean, I remember laughing about it. It's like I left school in the ninth grade. It's crazy. And I'm in a University of Iowa publication. It's strange. I'm being written about by this Harvard professor who's, you know, was called a kingmaker in the New York Times, you know, for poets. And um, things really started taking off in my 30s. And I, that's when I started cleaning my life up. So I drank a lot in my 20s. And it was a rough, it was a rough life. And that's where a lot of the uh, offensive behavior, that's, that's, that's where most of that happened. Um, cause I would drink and go online and be completely ridiculous and offend people. And, um, and, and also I was inappropriate quite often, but that changed. And 
had another book come out and it got reviewed in the New York Times. And then the University of Pennsylvania invited me to read down there. And then the guy who's the director of this program invited me to be a, a te- an online teacher for their their massive online open course, at, which was very popular at the time. And I started doing that and I was very good at it. And they would bring me down once a year and have me do podcasts and webcasts. And I was moving, moving on, moving up in that world. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> the, the last two years of that process of, of realizing I could make money in poetry, working for UPenn, I was involved in an affair that was, uh, I never should have been involved. And I take, I mean, I've, I take full responsibility for making the choice to be in there. I'm not, I would never make the case that I was kind of swept into something by a, by a, a narcissist manipulator, even though she is, but, um, I made the choice to stay involved in that relationship. And, um, when, when it ended, um, she went on a campaign of contacting, uh, you know, people at UPenn, all my publishers. So it was kind of like the ground, the groundwork was laid. Um, and I didn't really even realize it until January 10th. This is the height of me too. Um, I was actually talking on Skype with my brother and, uh, got a text from someone or a phone call from someone I had heard, hadn't heard from in years. And her first words were, are you okay? And I, I knew, I knew something was going on. And she said, so such and such person, this person I was in the affair with put a link up on Facebook to some letter saying, it says the Joseph, the poet Joseph Massey is an abuser. And, uh, got off Skype with my brother, got off the phone call and I knew my life was over because I had seen what happened, what had been happening to other people. And i saw what happened to a couple of other people in the poetry world prior to me too, when they, but back then they called it like call out culture or something. It was a very, it was a Tumblr oriented kind of movement. I think they called it call out culture, but it was like instantaneous. As soon as any accusation went out, they were done. And those poets, they just disappeared. I'm thinking of two in particular, it's disappeared. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I went into a, a total panic mode, um, shock, just my body went cold and, um, everything that I knew would happen, happened. It was a continuous pile on anybody I had ever had even the slightest uncomfortable interaction with, or even just an ordinary interaction with found some, something to say to just contribute to this massive pile on. And as I had said before, there was no, they didn't have me poetry. Didn't have a me too figure yet. And so people were waiting. They were, the energy was there, you know, it was dammed up and the dam broke when, when I was, uh, you know, put into the stockade and it was just one absurdity after another. One person I, 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 her accusation was that she met me at a poetry reading and I, he, he quote unquote, quote, he looked at me like I was a meal and it chilled me to the bone, unquote. This is what she said. 
and she got comments. Oh, I'm so sorry you had to you had to deal with that. I'm like I barely remember meeting this person, and I didn't look at her. I don't. I didn't want to eat her. Um, <laughs> it was just like I like what we were saying. Like this this spiral of um, the, the 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 target becomes the the magnet for everyone's um ire and 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 their backlog of grievances and um and it's perfectly acceptable to say anything about that person in, in the in the moment of the 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 mobbing you know the mob you could say anything and uh you know you can you, you're getting it off of your chest psychologically but you're also getting kind of love bombed in return because everyone's like cheering each other on and it's this it's this very sick euphoria kind of thing that happens it's weird it's so strange to see it play out online um because i think it's people feel much freer to say whatever they want online it's it it's probably um I think it makes it worse. I think it's, it's even more of a conflagration when it's, when it's online. And yeah, in my case, it wasn't just like two or three days of, of, of this kind of mobbing. It was, uh, it went on for a year, year and a half. Um, and the professional, um, consequences were immediate. I was within 24 hours had lost a workshop that I had planned, uh, or they invited me to do a workshop as some journal that also does like online stuff. They, they canceled it. Um, the publisher who was going to do my next book, Wesleyan university press, they immediately like signaled to me that, that they were, they were scared and they weren't sure really what was going to happen with my book, even though I had signed a contract. Um, I was getting con. I was talking to somebody behind the scenes there who was, you know, letting me know, um, uh, in secret what was happening. And, you know, they were already talking to, what is it? Ombudsman and things like this. And, and to try to get out of the contract within 24 hours, um, never asked me about the veracity of the accusations. UPenn dumped me a week later. They never asked me anything. In fact, they the director said in his letter, I, re I will not talk to you about any of the allegations. And he almost made it sound in his letter like there had been allegations within UPenn, which I know is completely untrue. Um, but it was just this legalese, you know, go to hell letter, basically. Don't have, you're not welcome here anymore. And it was only a couple months prior to that, he, this guy invited me to read at a fundraiser for them in New York City. And he just lavished me with praise before he introduced me. I'm a gift to the Kelly writer's house. And, and then two months later, I'm garbage. And Tria was treated like garbage. And um, maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think so with the woman who had, uh, who I was in the affair with, who planned all this out. Uh, she now has my position at UPenn. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. So I, I have worked in the past with, um, some attorneys who have, uh, represented primarily 
college kids um, who who are accused by somebody and then have to go through the university process. Um, and one of them, and I, I won't use names here, but one of them told me that actually in the vast majority of the cases that she deals with, um, there is some intermediary precipitating event before the accusations are made, i.e. Um, either uh, need a reason for academic failure um, or, or there's a breakup or there's um, somebody starts dating somebody else. And, and that's not to say that, you know, those, those events aren't related. Like one can, can make uh, the case that for example, academic failure is the result of trauma or, or whatever else. Um, but that's merely to say that these stories, and I think that's despite having this kind of revulsion for how you had to kind of strip down <laughs> in, in response to this. Um, I do think it's valuable because exactly some of those situations, these situations are, you know, nobody is fully innocent in most of these situations, right? Um, it, it, there is some combination of, um, you know, of, 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 uh, personal, like sort of personal issues, mental health issues, um, you know, interactions between people who are bad for each other, right. Um, some level of, of manipulation between both parties. Like this is actually, I think very, in some sense, very common among relationships between people. Um, and, and yet we have this, this sort of uh, system that puts it all into, the category based on, um, you know, based on on a, a framework of human nature that seems to me to be too simplistic, too flat. And then once you have the incentives in place to do that, then people engaged in all kinds of, of um, self-destructive behavior for themselves and then um, destructive behavior towards others, they use that system, right? Like the system becomes part of the game between two people, um, that can't be fully understood by the system itself, but nevertheless, that system meets out consequences on that basis. I don't know um, how much you agree with what I just said, but it, it reminds me very much of, you know, once you create something that you can use as a trump card against other people, people use it for personal reasons, right? It's not, um, it's, it, it doesn't, it isn't some kind of like abstract system. People use the, the tools that are put in front of them to try to advance themselves and hurt other people that they don't like. Um, and it, it almost seems like that's what's going on, that this entire Me Too structure um, was used in a very sort of um, like personal way, right? Like as in, it wasn't just, okay, here are the things that Joseph Massey was accused of. Here are the things he admits to. Here are the things he denies you know, um, we're going to have an, a, a sort of behind closed doors adjudication. Did he cross the line? Did he not cross the line? What things are true? What things are false? It was almost like it, it didn't matter. Um, none of that thing, no, none of those things mattered because the system was um, like fully got essentially in between people who are have their own impulses, their own reasons. And then this, this like very abstract system just comes between them and says, uh, okay, like you're... <laughs> <laughs> everything you say is now like backed by the force, like a very um, like sort of systematic and bureaucratic force. Or, or just the force of the force here. of a hashtag because it was believe women. And that was the thing. And it was in, I noticed in the poetry world, it was a, it was a surefire virtue signal 
for especially for men to believe everything and anything that was being said about whomever was being targeted um, because that was the appropriate thing to do. And so any, you know, any ridiculous thing that was said about me had to be believed and it could not be contradicted or you would be a, an apologist for an abuser. And then if I were, you know, the few apologies that I tried to, to make was twisted into, um, what, uh, you know, all the language they use, like, Oh, I'm gaslighting. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, you know, deny I'm in denial, things like this, you know, it's like, there's not literally nothing you can say to deny or to, or to not, not to deny, but to even just, even if you had actual, actual hard proof that these things didn't happen, which I did, which I, had actual proof of it. Like I had all this correspondence with this one, with this particular individual and the receipts just didn't matter. Um, because what mattered was what was being said by the, 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 the woman and they had to be completely believed. Um, and, you know, in the academic world, I mean, I don't come, I don't come from there and my, only real experience within it was, was in UPenn, but I know, I, you know, I observed these things play out, you know, in my case, but also in other, and, and people I've ended up becoming friends with hearing details about what happened with them. Uh, you know, people who are in academia that, yeah, even the most ridiculous, uh, allegations have to, had to be taken completely seriously. And, um, you know, to the point where people, uh, you know, had lost their jobs um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it, it's shockingly illogical and completely based on just emotion. And, uh, you, how can you, how can you, you, you can't, you can't function that way. A society can't function that way. You can't function based on the emotionality of, of the mob and, um, yeah. Now, and getting back to to what you were saying, though, that yeah, of course, Me Too was a um, it it so quickly became weaponized. You know, in the, in the beginning, I, I remember watching it happen. I remember these like collective um, uh, trauma bonding sessions that were happening online. You know, when when the when it first started, when people were hashtagging Me Too and talking about harassment that they've experienced and things like that. And there seemed to be something organically wholesome about it. But I, I knew that this was going, I, I knew as I saw it happening, this is going to go sideways quick. And it did. And it became the ultimate weapon to take out any man who you even just personally dislike and that's not to discount that there are men who were um, uh, who suffered consequences for me too, who did horrible things, who should have been, you know, dealt with a long time ago. That's for sure. Harvey, you know, the Harvey Weinstein's and all that. But um, a majority of the cases that I've that I witnessed, and because when I wrote that essay, I heard from so many people who were in my position. Um, 
men who were uh, falsely accused or, you know, they had some things that happened in their past, but they were exaggerated during Me Too by somebody who wanted to exact revenge on them. And, um, yeah, the, the um, you know, it's a weapon that uh, has been used to completely destroy people and drive them to suicide. And I think what still surprises me about it is that there are so many people willing to use that against someone they don't even know. And they must know what they're doing. They must know that they're driving this person to the brink of their capacity to, to even want to live anymore. And yet they do it anyway. That's still, maybe I'm naive. I don't know. Um, But, but you did come back, right? So from, from this, um, you have returned as a poet. You're now um, publishing through your own press. You have a substack, um, and you continued through all of this. You continued to write, right? Yeah, writing poet. It brought me back to when I first started writing as a as a as a means of survival, and the poetry never left me. It was there as a are you hearing the trucks? A little bit, but that's I live, I live on Main Street. But, um, yeah, it became a, a way of surviving what was happening to me because uh, the poetry um, anchors me to the present moment. It anchors me to the world. It anchors me to what I essentially am, you know. And I think so many of the people who were coming after me and, you know, emailing and harassing on uh, through social media publishers, telling them to drop me, et cetera, that they thought that I would just quit writing poetry or, 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 or something, or that poetry only meant to me as much as it means to them, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a career thing. You know, it's something to do. You know, they need to publish a book every couple of years for their CV or something. And poetry was never about, um, having a career for me, I was never going to stop writing poetry. And um, if anything, their their efforts to destroy me propelled the composition of poems. You know, it's like a, if I could write a poem today, then that's it. Look, that that's one day that I'm not going to, you know, drown in suicidal ideation or, you know, it, I mean, it was that serious but poetry is and always has been that serious to me. You know, it's not, um, you can't cancel poetry itself. You know, you can can't, you can destroy the, the structure I built around myself to survive through my talent, but, um, you're not going, you're not going to destroy this essential activity. That's completely a part of my life. Just like anything else that I would do. That's that I have to do like eat or breathe. I mean, it sounds very romantic. Maybe it is, but to me, it's very true. Um, so you, then you start writing essentially independently and, um, have you, is this your first book since you were canceled? I know you've been writing poetry the whole time, but, um, your last book was in 2018, 2019. And it was published, it was published in England by a publisher who, um, I, I don't want to speak for him because I don't want him to get uh, mobbed, but he was mobbed. 
for um, publishing that book. Um, I, I think it's safe to say he, he didn't agree at all with what was happening to me. But um, yeah, he was when that book came out, he was mobbed. It was not reviewed by anybody, of course, in the poetry world. And, but it did sell pretty well for a book of poetry by a canceled person. Um, it, it was then, it was, that was the summer of 2019. I was really just starting to um, kind of come out of the haze of, of, of shock at that point and to really want to kind of get my, get kind of grounded again. I came back to Twitter. I wrote the essay um, for Quillette and uh, published that book, which consisted mostly of work that had been written uh, since the cancellation. There, there are a lot of poems in there that are, that are, they were purely written for this, for the sake of survival. And um, I hope that resonates with people who read, who read the book, but this book that I recently self-published um, I, yeah, I felt like I had no, um, no, no real choice, but to publish it myself because the, the press who published the book, prior the press in England, um, they, they didn't want to work with me again. Uh, and I think because they did not want any, um, any, uh, pushback because the narrative in the poetry world switched from, well, he's a predator or a, a phrase I saw people use was sex pest. And I, I, I'm practically a celibate, you know, it's, it's insane. But now, now I'm a fascist. Now I'm a Nazi because I published in, in Quillette and because I'm open about my politics on Twitter. I think that really scared not only that publisher, but other publishers because the literary world here anyway is so dominated by the woke left. Um, nobody, nobody will touch me at this point. And, um, so I did it myself and it was very easy. It's very easy to do. Um, remarkably easy to do. And I'm so glad I did it. You know, it, it strikes me when, and it struck me when I was reading this and um, this rosary made of air, this book once again, which you should try to put uh, on the top of the poetry category at Amazon. Um, but it, it struck me that there's, and I haven't read your 2019 book and I, now I will go and back and see how different it is if at all, but I wouldn't say that there's any bitterness in this at all. That's yeah. like one emotion that completely doesn't run through your work or any of the work that you've done that I've, I've read. Um, and that's kind of a, a remarkable thing given that you had, you had built this, this sort of not only career, but an entire community. Um, you were getting paid to do the thing that you loved and that you felt you needed to do and felt called to do. And that was all taken away from you. In, in part because of um, some behavior that you actually admit to, but mostly behavior that you didn't do. Um, and, and so that was taken away from you on the basis of a lie. Uh, and I don't know, I, I feel like I would be much more bitter, but th there, there is no bitterness. That's one thing that is not um, evident, at least to me, in any of your poetry. Even, for, even from that first day, you know, when that, when that link was sent out to the WordPress website that had this letter on it and which started this, started the whole cancellation thing rolling. I, I made a tacit agreement with myself 
that I was not going to become bitter. I'm not going to lash out online. Um, I, and I had to work and I still work pretty hard every day to not become bitter. And I've managed to do that. Well, when the cancellation first started, I was deeply into meditation and things like that. And that, that really saved me. And now I've converted to Catholicism and having a spiritual life, having a spiritual path that became the infrastructure. Um, because the other, the, you know, as I put the infrastructure that made it possible for me to have the, a career was always, um, bound. To, I mean, it was never, um, guaranteed to, to stay there. You know, it was, it's transient success is transient. Um, relationships are transient, but my spiritual life is not. And my relationship with God is not. And, um, that's what keeps me from, from being, from being bitter is constantly turning to call it whatever higher power and praying, just getting on my knees and practicing humility. Because if I hadn't bitterness will consume anybody, I've seen it consume people to the point where it, it actually it seems to kill them. You know, it, it's a toxic poisonous emotion to carry around. I know some people would disagree with me. I have friends who are like, for lack of a better way of putting it, they're, they're very good at anger. They're very good at like, uh, uh, giving it back to people and relishing in it. <laughs> and I don't have that. Uh, I don't have it in me. Well, I do. I think everybody does, but I, I would feel really horrible about it. I would rather, um, if there's any getting back at anybody, it's just by doing what I've always done anyway, which has nothing to do with them, which is writing. And so the, yeah, the poems have nothing to do with them. I would never give them that part of myself ever. Yeah. Um, what, what advice to close this out? What advice would you give? Um, it seems like every couple days now there is somebody who is canceled over something. Uh, me too. Fervor seems to have died down a little bit. Um, but, but similarly to what happened to you, the, the political fervor is rising, right? If you've ever tweeted something that is a, a crime thought, um, then you can lose your job. You can lose your friends, your family, even in some cases, as people abandon you as they, they did to you. Um, what, what, let's close this out with the advice that you would give somebody. You say that a lot of people wrote to you either in the middle of going through this or they had gone through it. I mean, what advice would you give to somebody who gets that like body chilling, you know, first either um, reading a tweet or, or getting a phone call um, as, as, as you did. I mean, what would you say to them in that moment and in the, like, let's say next six months to a year? Well, when accusations first start flying, I, th I think it's a very human uh, impulse to want to apologize, but not just apologize, but to explain to people, why this isn't true or what is true and what isn't true. And I would tell anybody at this point, um, because when I, when things went down with me, there were, there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of precedent. You know, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. There was nobody for me to turn to for advice, but I would advise people do not apologize. Don't say anything, be silent and seek whatever kind of support you need to be safe because uh, it's very dangerous once 
these things start, once accusations start flying around, when you start losing things, losing friends, becoming ostracized, uh, being ostracized, it's one of the most painful experiences any, any human can, would have to endure. And so go see a therapist. If you drink, don't drink, go to AA meetings, uh, go to seek any kind of outside support that you can and, uh, cling to the people who, who are your true friends. And, um, but just don't, don't apologize and don't uh, explain yourself. Give it time. Joseph Massey, thank you so much for coming on High Noon. Um, you can read Joseph's work by following him on Twitter. You can also buy and should buy Rosaries Made of Air, which is his latest book of poems. Um, and you can subscribe to his Substack, uh, Dispatches from the Basement, where you get his poetry delivered to your inbox, which um, I really agree with Megan Kelly here. Like they, uh, It really does change um, your sort of online experience, especially if like Mia, you have a tendency to be very online and spend a lot of time, um, you know, discussing political ideas or trading hot takes and, and things. And um, really highly recommend that you follow Joseph and, and um, purchase his work and, and continue to fund his work because uh, you, you really have brought that moment of sort of stillness and, beauty and austerity um in in so many uh people's days so uh thank you so much for for your work and for continuing continuing to do it and uh good luck thanks for having me and thank you to our listeners high noon with inez stepman is a production of the independent women's forum as always you can send comments or questions to inez.stepman at iwf.org please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on apple Podcasts, acast google play youtube or iwf.org be brave and we'll see you next time on high noon